exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about, and I'm your host, T.W. Smith. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the differences between fake and real empowerment. You'll be able to find links to her budoandnoche.com blog on the website and as well as in your show notes. You know, many martial artists practice and challenge themselves because they're seeking this internal development. For me, empowerment always had this sense of stability when I was around it. When I was in my late 20s and early 30s, and I was around a couple of my senior classmates in my Sifu, these folks just seemed to have this presence about them that they could handle whatever came their way. They weren't really trying to control things. They were just able to work the cards that they were dealt with confidence. And I just did not have that. As I continued through, I began to recognize sure signs, particularly three of them, of insecurity. Where, for example, I was trying to control things that should have been just left to its natural courses. Or where I had lied to myself. I thought I had everything squared away, but in deeper observation, I really wasn't squared away at all. I had just put this feeling up that I had it squared away. Or the third sure sign of insecurity is when I had abandoned things that I needed to be involved in, but I didn't have the courage or the confidence at that early phases of my life to handle things when I couldn't have it my way or I didn't have the control of it, and so I just walked away from it. All three of those things were my indicators of when I had become insecure. I was not empowered enough to stick in there and to work the cards that I had been dealt at that particular time. Now, we're going to be investigating what empowerment actually means, both at a psychological level, but also at a very pragmatic, physical level. We learn, once we get past these three signs, particularly the ones where you lie to yourself, that empowerment is not what you feel. It is more of a matter of what you do. Now, this is carried even a step further by modern pragmatic psychologists who do not define empowerment as feeling empowered or phase two, where you are doing something because you're feeling empowered, but it's actually a phase three, which represents the modern definition of undeniable empowerment. And that is when you have the impact on others or circumstances based on your actions. In the martial arts world over the past 10 years or so, I've met several people who I believe are empowered. Andrea Harkins and Tasha, who we interviewed in the last episode, are two that come to mind immediately because they impact people. So they not only walk the walk, they talk the talk, they do what needs to be done, and it has rippling effects. Every agent of action, Ian Abernathy, Peter Constantine, Jamie Club, Ando Merzwa, are all part of the people who I would describe as being empowered. And that is why they're referred to as agents of action. However, in the realm of the martial arts world, which is a huge realm, there are those that use different forms of power to make them feel empowered. For example, political power, like those so-called masters that don't recognize students in their lineage because that student wouldn't play their games. Or those folks that have this great mass of esoteric knowledge, like if I use the magical chi forces, then I can strike you down in that acupoint like an elf shooting an arrow into a dragon. Or 
They also have the very clever conspiracy theories that all this is wrong. And the only real reasons behind this story is you fill in the blank. Dr. Ben Junkins wrote an essay that I'm bringing to you in its entirety that's based in the context of various personalities and the martial culture that is interwoven with this sense of empowerment by, air quote, knowing things. He states in the essay, quote, The relationship between claims to esoteric knowledge in both the martial arts and conspiracy theories is important. Both systems, referring to the systems of esoteric knowledge and systems of propagating conspiracy theories, are designed to create a sense of empowerment in those that come into their orbit, end quote. So basically, if you're part of the esoteric knowledge or have been read into the conspiracy theory, then you're going to feel more empowered. After the last episode where we had the interview with Tasha and she shared her remarkable origin story, you could hear her describing the steps she took to empower herself along the way. Now she works to send that message with her martial arts to others. Tasha understands what empowerment means at the grassroot level. Are you going to make it or not? Now, not everyone likes to live that way. Many folks like to believe that they're still moving forward, even as their lives, their health, or their relationships are spiraling down the toilet, and they take no action to do anything because they're too busy thinking about it. Psychologists' latest model of personal empowerment states that true empowerment cannot come from merely feeling empowered. But you have to have real-world evidence of your ability to have an impact on your relationships and social surrounding in order to claim true empowerment. Unfortunately, popular culture often likes the foo-foo approach of emphasizing this subjective emotion of feeling empowered. Empowerment, by definition, requires increasing our influence within our social sphere. Whether we do so within ourselves, for example, overcoming addictions, or with our intimate relationships, or even in a larger social context as citizens or as consumers, this is how we exercise our influence in our social sphere. Researchers at George Mason University show an interactive process that this emphasizes that the real-world actions we take and the impact of these actions have on our social relationships. Researchers at George Mason University show that true empowerment has an interactive process. This emphasizes the real-world actions that we take and the impact that those actions have on our social relations. So as we're moving forward to Kai Morgan's essay, let's remember the prosecution and the defense. During this episode, as we delve into empowerment, my position is that the perception of or the feeling of empowerment is a beneficial phase into becoming fully empowered. Now, how long that phase lasts, whether it's a second and a half or you know, three or four days, I'm not sure, but it is a small step into being fully empowered. However, it should never be confused with being empowered. And we're going to look more into that. And Kai does a beautiful job in her examples of what it is and what it's not and the risks that you take as you redefine what empowerment is. So this brings us to Kai Morgan's cross-gender essay. It's titled, 
11 differences between fake and real female empowerment in martial arts. And it does apply to both men and women. And you're going to see why here in just a moment. Because he starts with a story. Where a friend that we're going to call Katie is in a small group and they're sitting at a pub after class. Katie is talking and she's smiling and she says, learning karate has made me a total badass. Before, I just used to be like a timid little girl. Now, I still look timid on the outside, but on the inside, I'm literally walking around with the knowledge that I could kill someone if I wanted. It's changed everything. Her sensei chimes in. Oh, too right. Katie's gone from being a little mouse to really vicious. I just feel real sorry for any guy who ever tries to attack her. Katie blushes, looks down, and gives a tiny, secret smile. Now, Ty is there. She's been at the dojo. She was out visiting a friend, worked out with a friend, and had noticed Katie, who she describes as being in her early 20s, but looks younger. She radiated fear, unconfidence, and vulnerability. Traits that surely would make her a natural victim to the wrong type of person. Kai states that she had worked out with Katie that night and was pretty darn sure that Katie couldn't kill anybody, especially somebody with bad intentions. And given the fact that she was extremely timid and had an inability to work with anything but the gentleness of fake attacks and required a ton of kindness and encouragement. Kai also says that Katie had another tale. Apparently, just after a few minutes of being at the pub, she sits down with Kai and just spills out her whole traumatic life history in full earshot of everyone else. And it was so well rehearsed that it only added to her appearance of being completely defenseless. Well, this sets Kai off into motion, and she investigates a little bit with her friend and discovers that Katie's instructor and the other guys in her dojo were determined to build up her confidence, which gave birth to this bizarre, vicious badass narrative. Now, Kai's friend didn't participate in it because she felt that it was really kind of strange and a dangerous approach, but Kai's friend also knew that if she was going to say anything, she would get the stink eye and possibly labeled as a jackass for not participating. So, she said nothing. Kai began to feel angry, she got frustrated, and started to wonder, what the hell was this sensei thinking? Now, I agree. Lying to someone is far from a therapeutic approach or a helpful approach to getting someone better, especially in the martial arts, because it's a corporeal experience. You have to feel your way through. It's all about your performance a lot of times in your objective and what you're trying to do. So, you know, would you tell a running back on your football team, oh, man, you got this. You're the best. You can block that blitzing linebacker. You can outrun that cornerback, and you can chuck off that 295-pound defensive end. You got this, man. You're the best. And then you send him out there, and he gets crushed. And worse, he gets other people crushed. This is where folks like Jamie Club, Ando Merzwa, Ian Abernathy help send a clear message. Sports are sports, but in general, sporting athletes are not liars. Their performance in consensual competition stands for itself. No pretending. And if you are not up for the challenge, you get squashed in front of 
everybody. It was one of the things about wrestling that I loved and I hated. You get motivated real fast. Then you decide whether or not you're going to pull the tail out between your legs and get to real work, get some real power, or keep the tail between your legs and quit. Kine states in her essay, and I've noticed this a lot more recently too, is that, quote, the idea of women's empowerment is super trendy, and good people want to support it. But this vignette is an example of totally fake empowerment, which either has no real positive impact at all, or could even be harmful, end quote. This internal development that we're calling empowerment is achievable in a martial arts context. But what is the difference between fake or real empowerment in your training hall? Kai lists 11 possible ways to tell. The first one is, real empowerment fundamentally changes someone's demeanor and bearing. Kai states that Katie's declarations of confidence were contradicted by her fearful demeanor. True power and confidence are expressed through the way that we move our bodies. Studies have found that the way we bear ourselves and move our bodies can impact how we feel about ourselves just as well. This represents a two-way relationship between movement and confidence, and it offers a virtuous circle to martial artists. And the more confident we feel, the better our techniques will usually become. Most psychologists agree with this mind and body expression of empowerment. However, they also make it clear that you've got to use this power to affect the external world, or it is not the true final phases of empowerment yet. It is still on the potential side of empowerment. Now, this next one, Kai has identified as a rule, which is especially true for women. Real empowerment may help to keep you safer, but fake empowerment could put you at risk. It's pretty well known by serious martial arts that most ladies' self-defense classes aren't particularly empowering or useful. And if you're wanting to know more about that, you can listen to the interview we just had with Tasha, and she will give you some real live examples of some of her experiences with martial artists that were leading women's self-defense. Kai continues that the vast majority of rapes and physical assaults are carried out by partners, family members, or other people known to the victim instead of what is portrayed as some stranger jumping out of nowhere into the streets. It's inexplicable how many courses focus on only that scenario. Again, reflect for a moment on the stories that Tasha shared with us. One stalker had been friends of her family for years before she realized what he was up to. The other who role-played himself into her apartment as a serviceman, and if it wasn't for her spidey senses going off, her day could have ended much, much worse. As Kyan stated, most scenes in women's self-defense classes are carried out from the scenario of some stranger jumping out from behind the dumpster. But she also says, if you're going to do this kind of role-playing in your training, for goodness sake, do a good job with it. Because even if the attacker is from a random stranger, having a fun, cursory introduction to a few techniques with untrained, non-resisting, typically female partners 
is unlikely going to be able to be transferred to be of any use in the event of an attack. This is what we refer to as a progression of training, knowing where you are in this spectrum of going from being able to protect yourself to really just trying to understand circumstances and techniques. Uh, I enjoy using William Fairbairn's basics that are fairly easy to teach. They've stood the test of time and with practice can work against a realistic enemy, which brings us now into what I call the gray zone, which is this false sense of confidence these weekend or two-hour workshops may instill. Now, we know that as martial artists, we have to have those sorts of introductionary type of things. It's hard to get someone to sign up for a six-week or eight-week course, and they don't even know you. Why would they make that kind of a commitment? So you need something small in the beginning to get introduced and to share things and share your values and where you want to go with it, those types of things, develop a relationship with them. But often when they market their small introductionary workshop or course, they set unrealistic promises about what the impact of that course is going to have. There has to be a sharing of understanding progression. We don't go from being scared to death to a total badass in a week. No matter who the instructor is, no matter if you even go through and you spend the weekend and on Sunday afternoon you walk through a little fire pit thing, great, you're still not there yet. The student has to go through all the phases of development. Just like there are phases of recovery of addiction, phases of personal development, phases of grieving, and healing. So it falls upon the instructor to educate and reiterate to their students what phase that they are practicing in. Most thoughtful courses seek to offer real empowerment through understanding and addressing the actual realities of the violence that women are more likely to face. One such instructor, Alexis Fabricius earned her master's and works at York University in Toronto, Canada in the psychology department. She is also a member of the Association for Women in Psychology and as well as the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. In the martial arts world, Alexis is also the head instructor of Invicta Self-Defense, has multiple high-level ranks in karate, jiu-jitsu, and Chinese martial arts. Alexis explains, a thorough martial arts self-defense course educates women on the realities of violence against women, but they also provide information on the gender socialization process that women go through that make them vulnerable to violence in the first place. For example, women are raised to be feminine and demure in their actions, to not cause a scene, to be agreeable. All of these behaviors directly undercut their ability to effectively resist. To be able to say no or I don't want to do that can be very difficult for a woman when they have been raised to please others and too often put the needs and desires of other people before their own. Opening participants' eyes and minds to the way that our society has taught them to behave is a crucial step in overcoming the reservations women often have toward using verbal or physical resistance. Alexis continues by stating that it is not uncommon to witness during a class that teenage or adult women are reluctant to hit the pads, to practice with full intent, or to even make a noise while they're practicing. This is even true in an all-female space where participants have paid for the instruction, 
it is difficult for many to let go of these learned behaviors. Many students state that they feel embarrassed about being loud or nervous when asked to hit the pads with some real force. What Alexis has found in many years of teaching is when techniques are coupled with education, she sees a transformation in these women. They are able to hit with intent and strength. They perform the techniques and they begin to feel more powerful. The third signal is that fake female empowerment is often grounded in consumerism. Now, I had not thought about this one until Kai brought it up. If you are a woman or have a young girl or a woman in your life that you want to stay safe, you may want to be aware of how they are targeted through marketing. Kai writes that we cannot forget that in recent history, women's empowerment was about getting access to education, getting access to birth control, getting access to having a right of vote or other critical topics. Many brands, for example Dove, target women, but they are not the only ones involved in what is described as femertizing. This is how brands are selling directly to women. This femertizing has extended itself into the realm of martial arts. This is where a female practitioner can now empower themselves through the consumerism of having options such as the sparkling gloves so that you look like you're in good style with your new boxing gloves. Kai also writes that more insidiously, martial arts and self-defense are often sold to women primarily as products to improve their physical appearance in line with societal standards of attractiveness. Kai offers the example Matt Fidesz Martial Arts, where the self-defense is described as more of a definite afterthought. Now, I did not know Matt Fidesz. I do not know who he is. I've never met him. And I certainly do not want to throw someone under the bus. But after several years, I trust Kai's judgment. So I went to check him out and immediately could tell what Kai was referring to as self-defense as an afterthought. Well, let me let you decide. On his homepage, it says, quote, Matt Fidesz and the MF brand. It says, quote, Matt Fidesz is one of the most respected fitness and martial arts experts in the world. It also says that Matt Fidesz has built a global fitness empire with over 700 schools in the UK and worldwide. Now, don't I feel stupid for not knowing who he is? It continues. The Matt Fidesz brand has continued to evolve, and after being honored at the highest levels for his martial arts achievements and classes, the award-winning celebrity trainer and martial arts guru has grown the organization's offerings. It also states that Matt Fidesz is now at the forefront of dance, Pilates, ladies-only kickboxing, and performing arts, to name a few. Just below all of that, it says prominently, standing by itself, interested in a franchise? The Matt Fidesz Group has a range of franchise opportunities in martial arts, street dance, and Pilates industries. Please contact us to start your MF journey today. End of homepage. That verified everything I needed to know. It certainly sounds like pragmatic, practical martial arts and self-defense 
is on the secondary, third dairy, fourth dairy, if that's a word, right, is not the most important thing. we got to get behind the dance, Pilates, ladies on the kickboxing and performing arts before we ever get to the realistic martial arts. Which now brings us into number four. Real empowerment benefits others, not just the individual. We just heard in the previous point, and as well as in the beginning of this episode when I was pointing to other things that might give us empowerment, sometimes it's tied up with material goods. Hadley Freeman, an American-British journalist based in London, is also the author of excellent works such as Does Feeling Like a Woman Make You One? In her work, she gives an excellent analysis of how the idea of empowerment has morphed itself into a rather selfish concept. Miss Freeman explains that it originally referred to the idea of providing autonomy and strength to marginalized people in the 1970s. And then sometimes empowerment was often used in a feminist context in relation to women and girls in third world countries. Miss Freeman demonstrates this movement in recent decades from the idea of demographic, in this case the female demographic, gaining power for the good of everyone in the group has now moved to just one woman gaining power for the good of herself. There has been a shift from the collective to the individual. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer at The New Yorker and whose recent work includes essay on the ongoing cultural reckoning about sexual assault. Ms. Tolentino explains how this cultural reckoning excludes women who can't buy their empowerment. This version of empowerment that they're referring to can be actively disempowering. It's a series of objects and experiences that you can purchase. While the conditionings determining who can access and accumulate power stay exactly the same, the ready participation of well-off women in this strategy also points to a deep truth about the word empowerment that it has never been defined by the people who actually need it. People who talk empowerment by definition are already there. Kai continues by stating that in a martial arts context, focusing on your own empowerment while disregarding the well-being of the group and ultimately your community is to largely miss the point and to miss the wider benefits of your training. Her sensei likes to say that live half for yourself and half for others, and this makes good sense. Which brings us to the last example of empowerment. And to start, I want to take a sample from Mr. Green's 48 Laws of Power, where it says, The danger for most people come when they feel threatened. In such times, they tend to retreat and close ranks, to find security in a kind of fortress. In doing so, however, they come to rely for information on a smaller and smaller circle. They begin to lose perspective on events around them. They lose maneuverability and become easy targets, and their isolation makes them paranoid. As in warfare and most games of strategy, isolation often precedes defeat and death. Now, this nearly happened to China after they built up their Great Walls and made an effort to isolate themselves from all others, figuring that they didn't really need them. They had everything they needed as far as resources, as far as they could tell. China's livelihood began to spiral downward. Many individual people, including writers, artists, and entertainers, 
lean on bouts of solitude to cultivate their creativity and to clear their minds. Martial artists will also reach a point and begin to stop mingling as well. Their fortresses become their offices or some other form of a refuge area. Which leads us to law number 18 and the 48 laws of power. Do not build fortresses to protect yourself. Isolation is dangerous. The world is dangerous and enemies can be anywhere. Everyone has to learn to protect themselves. A fortress seems the safest, but isolation exposes you to more dangers than it protects you from. It cuts you off from valuable information. It makes you conspicuous and an easy target. Better to circulate among people, find allies, mingle. You are shielded from your enemies by the crowd. In accordance with this law of power, or in context empowerment, Louis XIV had the Palace of Versailles built in the 1660s for he and his court. The king's bedroom was literally in the center of this palace. Each day he would meet with people in a precise order. It was a very open, interwoven encounter process that kept him safe, meeting one after another. It was nearly impossible to plot against him because everyone had his ear. The king acquired more power by knowing where he was vulnerable, who had particular skills or grievances that may be used against him. Which Kai offers us this next level of understanding empowerment. Real empowerment has a clear sense of its own limitations. Now I'll give you the example of the 48 laws of power because you cannot figure out your limitations when you are in isolation if you expect to stay safe. Kai writes that I love my dojo beyond words and draw on its teaching as a source of personal power. But it also teaches me how limited I am. We learn what it feels like to be incapacitated by someone else's technique. And the practice of kumite in particular is a constant reminder of my own limitations. And I'm glad of it. Without such reminders, it would be all too easy to read more into our progress than is actually there. We can't test ourselves against ourselves. We must be engaged with others. Without such reminders, it would be all too easy to read more into our progress than is actually there. End quote. I translate that as we can't test ourselves against ourselves. We can't be a garage champion. We must be engaged with others. We can't put a fortress that says our methodology is the only one that works or our techniques are impeccable because they came straight down from the Bubishi or the Wubeiji. We must have the physical engagements with others that reveals our weaker areas and limitations. We have to put ourselves in a position where we can learn and that has to be done through others. Kai also makes an incredibly good point. Empowerment is not the removal of limits because without understanding your limits, you begin to live in a pretend world. She writes, acknowledging our limits is essential to understanding ourselves. For someone with a reading disability, pretending that they can read is not empowering. It just prevents them from getting help. This is what clearly links to Katie's story. It's a difficult situation for an instructor. Obviously, they don't want to crush her even further by harping on her weaknesses. However, 
is be holding on to an instructor to support students to gain realistic senses of who they are, not to create an indulgent fantasy or, in my metaphor, the fantasy is the fortress that puts Katie in a false sense of strength, which actually makes her more vulnerable. So in summary, after three signals that I mentioned that may alert you that you're not empowered, which I had actually put in my insecurity bucket, which were trying to control circumstances that should be left to develop naturally, which happens a lot in relationships, for example. Uh, Then number two was self-lies. And the third signal that you might not be empowered is where you abandon circumstances that you need to be involved in. But since you don't have full control, you decide that you're going to pack up your toys and go home which led us to five of Kai's 11 ways to recognize different types of empowerment inside of our training halls for both men and women. These were number one, real empowerment fundamentally changes someone's demeanor and bearing. Number two, real empowerment may help you stay safer. Fake empowerment will put you at greater risk. Number three, fake female empowerment is often grounded and consumerism. The fourth one, real empowerment benefits others, not just the individual. Number five, real empowerment includes a real clear sense of your own limitations. Also remember that I laid out three phases of empowerment. That first phase is where you become aware of your limitations. For example, you have feelings that you're getting stronger. That's almost a stepping stone. Phase two is where you begin to Take a little bit more assertive actions, for example. But phase three is where you're actually starting to have an impact. Those were really important. The next six of Kai's are equally important. They got a huge amount of rich information and value to them. And I'm going to be bringing those up very soon in a bonus episode. Also, for Kung Fu Podcast Premium members and Patreon members, I recently published a video and a reference book that you can get access to whenever you're ready. Make sure you keep your eyes out for the next six of 11 markers for True Empowerment, which will be coming out soon. Have a great practice today, and I'll be talking with you again very soon.